St. Augustine's Confessions, Book 12, Confessions 1. The message of your holy scriptures has set my heart throbbing, O Lord, and with the meager powers that are mine in this life, I struggle hard to understand it. The poverty of our human intellect generally produces an abundance of words, for more talk is spent in search than in discovery. It takes longer to ask than to obtain, and the hand that knocks toils harder than the one that receives. But we have your promise, and who shall annul it? Who can be our adversary if God is on our side? Ask, and the gift will come. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. Everyone that asks will receive, that seeks will find, that knocks will have the door open to him. These are your promises, and who need fear to be deceived when truth promises? Confessions 2 Humbly my tongue confesses to you, in the height of your majesty, that it was you who made heaven and earth, the heaven I see and the earth I tread, from which too came this earthly body that I bear. It was you who made them. But where, O oh Lord, is the heaven of heavens, of which we hear in the words of the psalm, to the Lord belongs the heaven of heavens, the earth he gives to the children of men. Where is that other heaven which we cannot see, and compared with which all that we see is merely earth? Beauty of form has been added to the whole of this material creation, even in its lowest parts, though not uniformly throughout, since it is not itself one whole throughout. Its lowest part is this earth on which we live, but compared with the heaven of heavens, even the heaven above our world is merely earth. So it is reasonable to refer to both these great bodies, the earth and the vault above it, as earth, when they are compared with that mysterious heaven which belongs to the Lord and not to the children of men. Confessions 3 Undoubtedly, the reason why we are told that this earth was invisible and without form, a kind of deep abyss over which there was no light, is that it had no form whatsoever. And the reason why you commanded it to be written that darkness reigned over the deep could only be that there was total absence of light. For if there had been light, where else would it have been but high above, shedding brilliance over all? But since as yet there was no light, what else was the presence of darkness but the absence of light? Darkness, then, reigned over all, because there was no light above, just as silence reigns where there is no sound. For what else is the presence of silence but the absence of sound? Was it not you, O Lord, who taught my soul these truths which it now confesses to you? Was it not you, O Lord, who taught me that before you fashioned that formless matter into various forms, there was nothing, no colour, no shape, no body, no spirit? 
yet there was not complete and utter nothingness. There was this formless matter entirely without feature. Confessions 4 How then could it be described in such a way that even dull minds could grasp it, except by means of some familiar word? And of all that goes to make up this world, what can be found nearer to utter formlessness than earth and the deep? Since they are the lowest in the scale of created things, they have beauty of form in a lower degree than the other, higher things, which are radiant in their splendour. Why then should I not assume that the words earth, invisible and without form, are meant to convey to men in a way that they can understand, that formless matter which you created without beauty in order to make from it this beautiful world. Confessions 5 Granted that this is the meaning of those words, when we consider what conclusions we can reach about this formless matter, we tell ourselves that it cannot be some abstract conception such as the mind can grasp, like life or justice, because it is the substance of which bodies have been made. Nor can it be anything that the senses can perceive, because there is nothing to be seen or felt in what is invisible and formless. We may reason about it in this way, but we must be content to know without knowing, or should I say, to be ignorant and yet to know. Confessions 6 As for myself, O Lord, if I am to tell you all that you have given me to understand about this formless matter, and if I am to set it down in this book, I must confess that when I first heard it mentioned, I did not understand what it meant, nor did those who told me of it. I used to picture it to myself in countless different forms, which means that I did not really picture it at all, because my mind simply conjured up hideous and horrible shapes. They were perversions of the natural order, but shapes nevertheless. I took formless to mean not something entirely without form, but some shape so monstrous and grotesque that if I were to see it, my senses would recoil and my human frailty quail before it. But what I imagined was not truly formless, that is, it was not something bereft of form of any sort. It was formless only by comparison with other more graceful forms. Yet reason told me that if I wished to conceive of something that was formless in the true sense of the word, I should have to picture something deprived of any trace of form whatsoever, and this I was unable to do. For I could sooner believe that what had no form at all simply did not exist, than imagine matter in an intermediate stage between form and non-existence, some formless thing that was next to being nothing at all. So I gave up trying to find the solution in my imagination, which produced a whole series of pictures of ready-made shapes, shuffling them and rearranging them at will. 
Instead, I turned my attention to material things and looked more closely into the question of their mutability, that is, the means by which they cease to be what they have been and begin to be what they have not been. I suspected that this transition from one form to another might take place by means of an intermediate stage in which they were deprived of all form, but were not altogether deprived of existence. However, I was not satisfied with the mere theory. I wanted to be sure. But if I were to tell of all the problems to which this gave rise and which you unraveled for me, and if I were to set the whole story down in these confessions, which of my readers would have the patience to follow it through to the end? Yet this will not deter my heart from giving you honour and singing your praises for things which it cannot express in words. Mutability, which belongs to all things that are subject to change, comprehends all the forms which those things take when changes occur in them. But what is it? Is it soul or body? Is it some particular kind of soul or body? If it did not sound nonsensical, I should say that it was nothing and yet something, or that it was and yet was not. Whatever it is, it must have been there first, able to be the vehicle for all the composite forms which we can see in the world. Confession 7 If it was to be there first, in order to be the vehicle for all these visible, composite forms, what can have been its own origin? It can only have derived its being from you, for all things have their origin in you. Whatever the degree of their being, although the less they are like you, the further they are from you. And here I am not speaking in terms of space. This means then that you, O Lord, whose being does not alter as times change, but is ever and always one and the same, the very same Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, made something in the beginning, which is of yourself, in your wisdom, which is born of your own substance, and you created this thing out of nothing. You created heaven and earth, but you did not make them of your own substance. If you had done so, they would have been equal to your only begotten Son, and therefore to yourself. And justice could in no way admit that what was not of your own substance should be equal to you. But besides yourself, O God, who are trinity in unity, unity in trinity. There was nothing from which you could make heaven and earth. Therefore you must have created them from nothing, the one great, the other small. For there is nothing that you cannot do. You are good, and all that you make must be good, both the great heaven of heavens and this little earth. You were, and beside you nothing was. From nothing, then, you created heaven and earth, distinct from one another. The one close to yourself, the other close to being nothing. The one surpassed only by yourself, the other little more than nothing. Confessions 8 
The one was the heaven of heavens, which belongs to you, O Lord. The other was the earth, which you gave to the children of men, the world which they could see and touch. But it was not yet like the world which we now see and touch. It was invisible and without form. It was a great chasm over which there was no light. In other words, darkness reigned over its depths, which means that the darkness above it was denser, even than the darkness in the depths of the sea. For even in its deepest parts, the ocean which we can now see has its own kind of light, discernible to fish and the living creatures that crawl upon the seabed. But in those days, the whole world was little more than nothing, because it was still entirely formless. Yet by now it was something to which form could be added. For you, O Lord, made the world from formless matter which you created out of nothing. This matter was itself almost nothing, but from it you made all the mighty things which are so wonderful to us. The sky above us, this great work of wonder, you made on the second day after you had created light on the first. You made it as a firmament to divide the waters from the waters. You said, let it be made, and it was made. This firmament you called heaven, which means not the heaven of heavens, but the heaven above our earth and sea. On the third day, you made the earth and the sea by giving visible form to that formless matter which you had created before the first day. You had made a heaven too before the first day, because we are told that in the beginning you made heaven and earth. But this was the heaven of our heaven, and the earth which you had made before the first day was that formless matter. This must be so, because we are told that it was invisible and without form, and darkness reigned over the deep. It was from this invisible and formless earth, this utter formlessness, this next to nothing, that you were to make all the things of which our changing world consists. Though it is not right to speak of consistency in this world, because its susceptibility to change is obvious from the fact that we are aware of time and can measure its passage. For time is constituted by the changes which take place in things as a result of variations and alterations in their form, and the matter of all these things is that invisible earth of which we have spoken. Confessions 9 This is why the Holy Spirit, who inspired your servant Moses to write, says nothing about times or days when he tells us that you created heaven and earth in the beginning. For clearly the heaven of heavens, which you created in the beginning, that is before the days began, is some kind of intellectual creature. Although it is in no way co-eternal with you, the Trinity, nevertheless it partakes in your eternity. Through the rapture and joy of its contemplation of God, it has power to resist the propensity to change. And by clinging to you unfailingly ever since its creation, it transcends every vicissitude of the world of time. Neither is the creation of that formless matter, the invisible, unformed earth, reckoned among the days of creation. For where there is no form and no order, nothing is dissolved, 
nothing renewed. And without this process of succession, there can be no days or any changes denoting periods of time. Confessions 10 Let me listen to truth, the light of my heart, and not to the voices which I heard in the days of my darkness. I deserted truth for worldly things, and the night closed over me, but even then, even in my darkness, I continued to love you, O truth. I wandered away, but I remembered you. I heard your voice at my back, calling me to return though I was scarcely able to hear it in the uproar raised by men who would not live at peace with you. Now I return from the heat of the fray, panting to reach your fountain. Let none keep me from it. There I shall drink and its waters shall give me life. Let me not be my own life, for when I lived of myself, I lived evilly. I was death to myself. But in you I live again. Speak to me. Breathe the words of truth to me. I have faith in your books, but their message is hard indeed to fathom. Confessions 11 In my heart, O Lord, I have heard your voice telling me loud and clear that you are eternal and that to you alone immortality belongs. For in you there is no change, either of form or motion. Your will does not alter as times change, for a will which varies is not immortal. In your presence this is clear to me. I pray that it may become ever more clear and that in the light of this truth I may persevere wisely to the end beneath the shelter of your wings. In my heart, O oh Lord, I have also heard your voice telling me loud and clear that it was you who made all natures and substances that are not what you are, yet are. All derives from you, except what is no being at all. The movement of a will away from you, the supreme being, towards some inferior being does not derive from you. Such movement is wicked and sinful, but no man's sin can harm you or disturb the order of your rule, either at its summit or at its base. In your presence this is clear to me. I pray that it may become ever more clear, and that in the light of this truth I may persevere wisely to the end beneath the shelter of your wings. In my heart, O oh Lord, I have also heard your voice telling me loud and clear that not even the heaven of heavens, your creature, is co-eternal with you. Though it delights in you alone and enjoys your savour in untiring purity, at no time and in no way does it shed its mutability. But being always in your presence and clinging to you with all its love, it has no future to anticipate and no past to remember. And thus it persists without change and does not diverge into past and future time. How happy must this creature be, if such it is, constantly intent upon your beatitude, forever possessed by you, forever bathed in your light. I can think of no description better suited to the heaven of heavens which belongs to the Lord, 
than to call it your dwelling, which forever contemplates the blessedness of God, never forsaking it for lesser things, a pure mind at one and undivided in the sure and settled peace of the Holy Spirits, the dwellers in your heavenly city far above our earthly heaven. In this there is a lesson for the soul, which travels far upon its earthly pilgrimage. If it thirsts for you, if morning and evening its diet is of tears, if daily it must listen to the taunt, where is your God now? If it now makes one request of you and one alone to dwell in your house its whole life long, and what is its life but you? What are your days but your eternity? What else but eternity are your years, which can never fail because you are unchanging? If this is what it asks, let it learn as far as it is able, how far above all time you are in your eternity, by reflecting that the heaven of heavens, which is your dwelling and travels upon no worldly pilgrimage, although it is not co-eternal with you, nevertheless is free from all vicissitudes of time, because it clings to you unfailingly and without cease. In your presence this is clear to me. I pray that it may become ever more clear, and that in the light of this truth I may persevere wisely to the end, beneath the shelter of your wings. As for the changes which occur in the things of this world, the last and lowest parts of your creation, it is clear that they take place in formless matter of some kind. And if all form were removed and swept away, so that nothing remained but this formless fundamental, through which things are altered and changed from one form to another. None but the dreamer at the mercy of his wild imaginings would claim that he could then show evidence of changes of time. It would be utterly impossible for it to do so, because without change of movement there is no time, and there can be no change where there is no form. Confessions 12 I have given thought to these things, my God, to the limit of the power you give me, and insofar as you both prompt me to knock and also open your door to my knocking. I find that you made two things from which time is absent, though neither is co-eternal with you. Time is absent from the one because it is so formed that without any lapse in its contemplation of you, without any interim of change, mutable but without mutation, it is constant in its enjoyment of your eternity and absolute immutability. And from the other, because it was so utterly formless that it could not relinquish one form and adopt another, either one of motion or one of rest, which would have made it subject to time. But you did not leave it formless, you made these two things, heaven and earth, in the beginning before the days began. But the earth was invisible and without form, and darkness reigned over the deep. This sentence, so worded as to be intelligible in some degree to people who are unable to conceive of utter absence of form, that is nevertheless not merely nothing at all, describes the formlessness from which you made the firmament above our world, the visible earth to which you gave order, water 
in all its beauty, and whatever else goes to make up this world and was made, as we are told, on the different days of the creation. All these were made after the days began, because their nature is such that they display the changes of time affected by the regular processes of change in movement and form. Confessions 13 This then, my God, is how I interpret your scripture when I read the words, In the beginning God made heaven and earth. The earth was invisible and without form, and darkness reigned over the deep. Scripture does not say on which day you made them, and I understand the reason for this to be that heaven here means the heaven of heavens, that is the intellectual heaven, where the intellect is privileged to know all at once, not in part only, not as if it were looking at a confused reflection in a mirror, but as a whole, clearly, face to face. Not first one thing and then another, but as I have said all at once, quite apart from the ebb and flow of time. And earth means the invisible, formless earth, also unaffected by the ebb and flow of time, which always marks the change from this to that, since where there is no form, there can be no this and no that. These, then, are the heaven and earth that are meant, as I understand it, when the scripture says in the beginning God made heaven and earth, without mention of day. Heaven, that is the heaven of heavens which was given form from the very beginning, and earth, that is, earth invisible and without order, which was utterly formless. In fact, the scripture explains in the very next sentence what earth is meant by this. And since it says that on the second day the firmament was made and that it was called heaven, it gives us to understand which heaven was meant by the first sentence, which makes no mention of days. Confessions 14 How wonderful are your scriptures, how profound. We see their surface and it attracts us like children. And yet, O oh my God, their depth is stupendous. We shudder to peer deep into them, for they inspire in us both the awe of reverence and the thrill of love. How hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them with your two-edged sword, so that there should be none to oppose your word. Gladly would I have them die to themselves and live to you. But there are others, not opponents of the book of Genesis, but acclaimers of it, who say, This is not what the Spirit of God, who wrote these words through Moses his servant, meant us to understand by them. He did not mean them to be understood as you explained them. He meant them to be taken in another way, the way that we say is right. My answer to them is this, and I make it before you as our judge, for you are both my God and theirs. Confessions 15 
This is the case I put to them. Within me I hear the loud voice of truth telling me that since the Creator is truly eternal, his substance is utterly unchanged in time and his will is not something separate from his substance. This they will surely not deny. It follows that he does not will first one thing and then another, but that he wills all that he wills simultaneously in one act and eternally. He does not repeat his act of will over and over again, or will different things at different times, and he neither starts to will what he did not will previously, nor ceases to will what he willed before. A will which acts in this way is mutable, and nothing that is mutable is eternal. But our God is eternal. Again, I am told by that inner voice that expectation of things to come changes to direct perception when they are present, and direct perception changes to memory when they are gone. My opponents will not deny this. Yet any intellectual activity which varies in this way is mutable, and nothing that is mutable is eternal, but our God is eternal. By linking these two truths and consolidating them, I find, first, that my God, the eternal God, did not create the world by any new act of his will, and second, that his knowledge does not admit of anything that is transitory. What do my opponents reply to this? Will they deny that it is true? We do not, they say. Will they then deny that every nature that has form and all matter which is susceptible of form can only derive its being from him who is the sovereign good because he is the sovereign being? We do not deny this either, they say. Then do they deny that there is a sublime creature which is bound to the true God, the truly eternal God, by so pure a love, that though it is not co-eternal with him, it never parts from him and never falls away to become subject to the fluctuation and succession of time, but remains serene in the sure contemplation of God alone. It does this, O God, because it loves you as much as you command, and therefore you reveal yourself to it. Such a creature has need of nothing else and therefore neither deviates from you nor turns towards itself. This creature is God's dwelling. It is not a material house of earth or even of some heavenly matter. It is spiritual, partaking in your eternity because it is forever without blemish. You have set it there, unaging forever, given it a law which cannot be altered. Yet it is not co-eternal with you, because it is not without a beginning. It was made. This is not to say that time was created before it, because wisdom is first of all created things. Wisdom here does not mean the wisdom who is co-eternal and equal with you who are our God, with you who are his Father, the wisdom through whom all was created, the beginning in whom you made heaven and earth. It means created wisdom, that intellectual nature which is light because it contemplates the light. This too we call wisdom, although it is created wisdom. 
But there is as great a difference between the wisdom which creates and wisdom which is created as between the light which enlightens and light which receives its brilliance by reflection or between the justice which brings justification and justice which results from it. Even we have been called your justice, for your servant Paul says that Christ came into the world, that in him we might be turned into the holiness of God, that is, into your justice. There was then a created wisdom which was created before all else. It was the rational, intellectual mind of God's pure city, our mother, the heavenly Jerusalem, a city of freedom which lasts eternally in heaven. Can this be any other than the heaven of heavens which belongs to the Lord, the heaven which resounds with your praises? We find no time before it, because it precedes even the creation of time, having been created before all else. But before it is the eternity of its creator, by whom it was made and from whom it derived, not the beginning of its time, since as yet there was no time, but the beginning of its being. So though it derives from you, our God, it is something quite other than yourself. It is not God who is in himself. And we find that not only is there no time before it, but no time in it, because it is fitted to behold your face continually and is never turned away from it. This means that it undergoes no change. Yet mutability is inherent in it, and it would grow dark and cold unless by clinging to you with all the strength of its love, it drew warmth and light from you like a noon that never wanes. O house of light and beauty, how well I love the house where the Lord dwells, the shrine of his glory. It was he who made you, and it is he who possesses you. In my pilgrimage let me sigh for you, and I pray to him who made you that he should possess me too in you, for I also was made by him. I have been wayward, like a lost sheep, but I hope to be carried back to you on the shoulders of my shepherd who built you for himself. What do my opponents say to this? Although they disagree with me, they believe that Moses was a devout servant of God and that the Holy Spirit speaks in his books. Do they agree that this house of God, though not co-eternal with him, nevertheless in its own way, lasts eternally in heaven, where we search in vain for changes of time? We shall not find them there, because the house of God which knows no other content but clinging to him forever, rises above every extension and every fugitive span of time. We agree to this, they say. Then of all that my heart cried out to my God, when inwardly it listened to the sound of his praises, what do they claim is false? Do they say that I was wrong to say that there was formless matter in which there was no order because there was no form? But where there was no order, there could be no successive movement of time. Yet, this next to nothing, insofar as it was not utterly nil, must have had its being from him, from whom everything that in any degree is, derives its being. This also we do not deny, they say.
Confessions 16 In your presence, my God, I wish to reason a little with those who admit all that your truth tells me inwardly in my mind. As for those who deny these truths, let them snarl and deafen themselves as much as they like. I shall try to persuade them to be silent and to open a way to their hearts for your word. But if they refuse, if they repulse me, I beseech you, my God, do not leave my cry unanswered. Whisper words of truth in my heart, for you alone speak truth, and I will leave these unbelievers outside to fan the earth with their breath, stirring up the dust into their own eyes, while I withdraw to my secret cell and sing you hymns of love, groaning with grief that I cannot express as I journey on my pilgrimage. Yet I shall remember the heavenly Jerusalem, and my heart shall be lifted up towards that holy place. Jerusalem, my country. Jerusalem, my mother. And I shall remember you, her ruler, you who give her light, you her father, her guardian and her spouse, you who are her pure, her deep delight, you who are her constant joy, you who are at once all that is good beyond the power of words to describe, because you alone are goodness itself, the sovereign good, the true good. I shall not turn aside until I come to that abode of peace, Jerusalem, my beloved mother, where my spiritual harvest is laid, the fountainhead of all that I know for certain on this earth. My God, my mercy, I shall not turn aside until you gather all that I am into that holy place of peace, rescuing me from this world where I am dismembered and deformed and giving me new form and new strength for eternity. But there are others who do not say that all these truths are false. They honour your sacred scripture, which you gave to us through your holy servant Moses, and just as I do, they look on it as the highest authority that we must follow. But they disagree with me on some points, and it is to them that I now address myself. You are my God and theirs. Be the judge between my confessions and the objections which they make. Confession 17. We do not quarrel with anything you say, they tell me except your interpretation of the words, in the beginning God made heaven and earth. When Moses wrote them by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he did not have in mind the two things which you describe. By heaven, he did not mean that spiritual or intellectual creature which forever contemplates God face to face. And by earth, he did not mean matter without form. What then did he mean, I ask? We can explain what Moses had in mind and what he meant to convey by those words. What is your explanation? The words heaven and earth are a brief and comprehensive preliminary phrase used by Moses to mean the whole of the visible world. Afterwards, he went on to detail, one by one, in the enumeration of the days, all the things which it pleased the Holy Spirit to make known in this way. The people for whom he wrote were so primitive and earthbound that he thought it unsuitable to tell them of any but the visible works of God.
Having said this, they agree that the earth, which was invisible and without form, and the deep, over which darkness reigned, that is, the substance from which, as we are subsequently told, all the visible things with which we are familiar were made and set in order during the six days, may without inconsistency be taken to mean the formless matter of which I have spoken. Others may maintain that the phrase heaven and earth was used in the first sentence of Genesis to signify the same formless and confused matter, because it was from it that our visible world, with all the phenomena which it so evidently contains and which we often enough refer to in the aggregate as heaven and earth, was created and perfected. Others again may say that the phrase heaven and earth not inappropriately signifies nature, whether visible or invisible, and therefore these two words cover the whole of creation, that is, all that God made in his wisdom, or in other words, in the beginning. Yet it was all made, not from God's own substance, but from nothing. This I do not dispute, for created things are not the same as God. In all of them there is the principle of mutability, whether they remain steadfast like the eternal house of God or undergo change like man's soul and body. Therefore, the argument goes on. The common matter of all things, whether visible or invisible, is what is meant by those two words. It was still formless but had the potentiality of form. From it, heaven and earth were to be made, in other words, the invisible and the visible creation, to each of which form has now been added. This matter is referred to both as earth, invisible and without form, and as darkness over the deep, with the distinction that earth, invisible and without form, means corporeal matter before it was defined by form, and darkness over the deep, spiritual matter, before a limit was fixed to what we might call its unconstrained fluidity, and before the light of wisdom banished its darkness. Still, another theory might be that when we read the verse, in the beginning God made heaven and earth, we're not meant to understand by the words heaven and earth, two natures, invisible and visible, already perfected and endowed with form but a rudimentary beginning of things, matter still formless but capable of receiving form and serving the purpose of creation. These names were used to describe it because there already existed in it, though confusedly and still without distinction of quality or form, the two creatures, which now that each has been set in its proper order, we call heaven and earth, the one spiritual, the other corporeal. Confessions 18 I listen to all these arguments and give them thought, but I will not engage in wordy disputes, such as can only unsettle the minds of those who are listening. The law is intended for edification, and it is an excellent thing where it is applied legitimately because its end is charity based on purity of heart, on a good conscience and a sincere faith. Christ our Master well knows which are the two commandments on which he said all the law and the prophets depend. O oh my God, light of my eyes in darkness, since I believe in these commandments and confess them to be true with all my heart, 
How can it harm me that it should be possible to interpret these words in several ways, all of which may yet be true? How can it harm me if I understand the writer's meaning in a different sense from that in which another understands it? All of us who read his words do our best to discover and understand what he had in mind. And since we believe that he wrote the truth, we are not so rash as to suppose that he wrote anything which we know or think to be false. Provided, therefore, that each of us tries as best he can to understand in the Holy Scriptures what the writer meant by them, what harm is there if a reader believes what you, the light of all truthful minds, show him to be the true meaning? It may not even be the meaning which the writer had in mind, and yet he too saw in them a true meaning, different though it may have been from this. Confessions 19 For the great truth, O Lord, is that you made heaven and earth. It is true that the beginning is your wisdom, in which you made all things. It is also true that this visible world is divided into two great parts, heaven and earth. And these two words comprise in brief all natures that have been created and put into the world. It is true that anything which is mutable implies for us some formless principle by which it receives form or is changed or converted into another form. It is true that time has no effect upon a being which adheres so closely to the eternally immutable that though it is itself mutable, it undergoes no change. It is true that formlessness, which is almost nothingness, cannot be a vehicle for the passage of time. It is true that the matter of which something is made can by an extension of meaning be given the name of the thing which is made from it, and in this way the name heaven and earth might be applied to that formless matter from which heaven and earth were made. It is true that of all things which have form, none is closer to formlessness than earth and the deep. It is true that you, who are the origin of all things, made not only what has been created and given form, but also any matter which can serve the purpose of creation or is capable of receiving form. It is true that whatever is formed from the formless principle was first formless and was then given form. Confessions 20 There is no doubt of these truths in the minds of those whom you have gifted with insight to understand such matters and who firmly believe that Moses your servant spoke in the spirit of truth. But from these truths each of us chooses one or another to explain the phrase, in the beginning God made heaven and earth. One man says that it means that in his word co-eternal with himself, God made the two creations, the one an intellectual or spiritual being, the other being perceptible through the bodily senses, or in other words, corporeal. Another says that it means that in his word co-eternal with himself, God made the whole mass of this corporeal world, together with all the natures which it contains and which are visible and familiar to us. Another says that it means that in his word co-eternal with himself, God made formless matter from which both his spiritual and his corporeal creation were to be formed. 
Another says that it means that in his word co-eternal with himself, God made the formless matter of his corporeal creation, and that in it, though still in confusion, were the heaven and earth which we now see distinct from one another and endowed with form in the mass of the universe around us. Another says that it means that at the very beginning of the act of creation, God made formless matter in which heaven and earth were contained without distinction, and that from this matter they were formed as they now appear to us, together with everything that is in them. Confessions 21 The same applies to our interpretation of the words that follow. Of all the truths which I have listed, each of us chooses one or another to explain the meaning of the phrase. The earth was invisible and without form, and darkness reigned over the deep. One man says that this means that the corporeal thing which God made was still only the matter of corporeal things, and that it was without form, order, or light. Another says that it means that the whole of what we call heaven and earth was still matter without form or light, and that from it, the corporeal heaven and the corporeal earth were to be made together with everything in them that we can perceive by our bodily senses. Another says that it means that the whole of what we call heaven and earth was still the matter, without form or light, from which both heaven, that is the heaven which we can only understand in our minds, and which is elsewhere called the heaven of heavens, and earth, that is, all corporeal nature, including the corporeal heaven above our earth, were to be made. In other words, the whole of creation, invisible and visible alike, was to be made from it. Another says that when the scripture speaks of heaven and earth, it does not mean the sheer formlessness of which we have spoken. This formlessness already existed and is what is meant by earth invisible and without form and darkness over the deep. From it, as scripture tells us in the first sentence, God made heaven and earth, that is, the spiritual and the corporeal creation. Another says that the words, the earth was invisible and without form, and darkness reigned over the deep, mean that the formlessness already existed, and that it was the matter from which the first verse of Genesis tells us that God made heaven and earth, that is, the whole corporeal mass of the world divided into its two main parts, the upper and the lower, together with all the creatures in them which are known and familiar to us. Confessions 22. As for these last two opinions, one might object that if those who hold them will not agree that the words heaven and earth are used to mean formless matter, there must have been something which God had not made himself, but from which he made heaven and earth. There is nothing in scripture to say that he made any such matter, unless we infer it from the words heaven and earth, or even earth alone as they are used in the verse, in the beginning, God made heaven and earth. In the next verse, which says, the earth was invisible and without form, although it suited the writer to give this name to the formless matter, we can only understand it to mean what the first verse tells us that God made when it says that he made heaven and earth. If we put forward this objection, 
Those who hold either of the two opinions which I set down at the end of the last chapter will reply, We do not deny that this matter was made by God, from whom all good proceeds. For as we agree that what is created and given form is a higher good, we agree equally that what is made capable of serving the purpose of creation and of being used as the vehicle of form is a lesser good, but a good nevertheless. All the same, we point out that scripture does not say that God made this formless matter any more than it says that he made a great many other things, the cherubim and seraphim, for example, and all the other separate orders mentioned by St. Paul, thrones and dominions, princedoms and powers. Yet it is clear that God made all of these. Again, if the verse God made heaven and earth includes everything, what are we to say of the waters over which the Spirit of God moved? If we understand the word earth to comprise the waters also, how can we take the same word to apply to formless matter when we see that the waters are so beautiful? Moreover, if we suppose earth to mean formless matter, why is it written that from this same formless principle the firmament was made and was called heaven, whereas it is not written that the waters were made? They are not still formless and invisible, for we can see them and admire their beauty as they flow. Again, if the waters were given their beauty when God said, let the waters below the vault collect in one place, that is, if we take it, that the gathering of the waters was the process by which they were endowed with form, what can we say of the waters which are above the firmament? If they were without form, they would not have been worthy of the place of honour that was given to them. And yet scripture does not record any word spoken by God by which he gave them form. Therefore, even if Genesis does not record that God made a particular thing, neither true faith nor strict reasoning leave us in any doubt that he made it. And it would be preposterous to maintain that the waters above the firmament must be co-eternal with God simply because though they are mentioned in Genesis, we can find no statement as to when they were made. Why then, since truth is our teacher, should we not also take it that the formless matter which this text of scripture calls earth invisible and without form and darkness over the deep? was created by God out of nothing and is therefore not co-eternal with him, even though Genesis omits to mention when it was made. Confessions 23 I listen to these arguments and take stock of them to the best of my power, feeble though it is, my God, as I confess to you who know it without my telling. And I realize that when a message is delivered to us in words, truthful though the messenger may be, two sorts of disagreement may arise. We may disagree either as to the truth of the message itself or as to the messenger's meaning. It is one thing to inquire which is the true history of the creation, another to ask what Moses, who was so good a servant to the family of your faithful, meant those who read or heard his words to understand by them. As for the first sort of disagreement, I wish to have no dealing with any who think things which in reality are false. 
And as for the second, I wish to have none with any who think that Moses wrote what was not true. But I pray that in you, O Lord, I may dwell in harmony and joy with those who feed upon your truth in the fullness of charity. May they and I together approach the words of your book, and in them may we seek your meaning as we were meant to understand it by your servant, through whose pen you delivered those words to us. Confessions 24 But the truths which those words contain appear to different inquirers in a different light. And of all the meanings that they can bear, which of us can lay his finger upon one and say that it is what Moses had in mind and what he meant us to understand by his words? Can he say this with as much confidence as he would say that what Moses wrote is the truth, whether he had that particular meaning in mind or another? O oh my God, I am your servant and have vowed to you a sacrifice of confession which I make to you in this book. I pray that in your mercy I may pay my vows to you, and I declare with all confidence that you created all things, invisible and visible alike, in your immutable word. But can I declare with equal confidence that this and none other was the meaning which Moses had in mind when he wrote, in the beginning God made heaven and earth. I cannot believe that this was what he was thinking when he wrote those words with as much certainty as I know in your truth that what he wrote is true. It is possible that when he said in the beginning, he was thinking of the first beginning of creation. And by heaven and earth, he may here have meant us to understand not any nature already formed and perfected, whether spiritual or corporeal, but both of these in a rudimentary state and still without form. I see that either meaning could be the true one, whichever of the two he may have meant. But it is not so clear to me which of them he in fact had in mind. Nevertheless, whether this great man had one of these two meanings in mind when he wrote those words, or was thinking of some other meaning which I have not set down here, I am quite sure that he saw the truth and expressed it accordingly. Confessions 25 Let no one irritate me further by saying Moses did not mean what you say. He meant what I say. If anyone were to ask me, how do you know that Moses meant his words to be taken in the way that you explained them, it would be my duty to listen to the question with composure, and in answer I should give the explanation which I have already given, perhaps rather more fully, if the questioner were slow to understand. But when a man says Moses did not mean what you say, but what I say, and yet does not deny that both his interpretation and mine are consistent with the truth, then, O life of the poor, O my God, in whose bosom there is no contradiction, I beg you to water my heart with the rain of forbearance, so that I may bear with such people in patience. They speak as they do, not because they are men of God, or because they have seen in the heart of Moses, your servant, that their explanation is the right one, but simply because they are proud. They have no knowledge of the thoughts in his mind, but they are in love with their own opinions, not because they are true, but because they are their own. 
If this were not so, they would have equal respect for the opinions of others, provided that they were consistent with the truth. Just as I respect their opinions when they do not depart from the truth, not because the opinions are theirs, but because they are within the truth. And in fact, for the very reason that they are true, these opinions are not their own property. If, on the other hand, they love them because they are true, they are both theirs and mine, for they are the common property of all lovers of the truth. But I will not tolerate their contention that Moses meant not what I say he meant, but only what they say. It appalls me, because even if their explanation is the right one, the arbitrary assurance with which they insist upon it springs from presumption, not from knowledge. It is the child of arrogance, not of true vision. We must dread your judgments, O Lord, because your truth is not mine alone, nor does it belong to this man or that. It belongs to us all, because we all hear your call to share it, and you give us dire warning not to think it ours alone, for fear that we may be deprived of it. If any man claims as his own what you give to all to enjoy and tries to keep for himself what belongs to all, he is driven to take refuge in his own resources instead of in what is common to all. For he who utters falsehood utters what is his alone. O good judge, O God, O truth, Listen as I lay before you the answer that I shall give to any man who contradicts me in this fashion. I speak before you and before my brothers in the faith who apply the law legitimately, that is, to the end of charity. Listen, if it so please you, and hear what I shall say to him. Speaking peaceably, as between brothers, I shall say, if we both see that what you say is true and also that what I say is true, what enables us to recognize this truth? I do not see it in you, nor do you see it in me, but we both see it in the immutable truth which is above our minds. Therefore, since there is no dispute between us about the light which shines from the Lord our God, why do we argue about the thoughts of a fellow man which we cannot see as clearly as we see the immutable truth? Even if Moses were to appear to us and say, this is what I meant, we should not see his thoughts, but would simply believe his word. Let us not, therefore, go beyond what is laid down for us, one man slighting another out of partiality for someone else. Let us love the Lord our God with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind and our neighbour as ourselves. Whatever Moses meant in his books, unless we believe that he meant it to be understood in the spirit of these two precepts of charity, we are treating God as a liar, for we attribute to his servant thoughts at variance with his teaching. When so many meanings, all of them acceptable as true, can be extracted from the words that Moses wrote, do you not see how foolish it is to make a bold assertion that one in particular is the one he had in mind? Do you not see how foolish it is to enter into mischievous arguments which are an offence against that very charity for the sake of which he wrote every one of the words that we are trying to explain? Good 
Confessions 26 O my God, whose high majesty is the measure of my lowliness, my God, repose of my labour, since you who hear my confessions and forgive me my sins command me to love my neighbour as myself. I cannot believe that Moses, who served you so faithfully, received a lesser gift from you than I should have wished with all my heart to receive for myself, if I had been born when he was born and you had placed me in his position, so that mine should have been the heart and tongue which were to serve you in giving to the world those writings which so long after they were written were still to benefit all nations and were to prevail as a paramount authority over every doctrine inspired by falsehood and pride. For we are all made from the same clay, and man is nothing unless you remember him. And if I had been Moses and you had made it my task to write the book of Genesis, I should have wished you to give me such skill in writing and such power in framing words, that not even those who as yet cannot understand how God creates should reject my words as beyond their comprehension. And those who can should find expressed in the few words of your servant whatever true conclusions they had reached by their own reasoning. And if, in the light of truth, another man saw a different meaning in those words, it should not be impossible to understand this meaning too in those same words. Confessions 27 The account left by Moses, whom you chose to pass it on to us, is like a spring which is all the more copious because it flows in a confined space. Its waters are carried by a maze of channels over a wider area than could be reached by any single stream drawing its water from the same source and flowing through many different places. In the same way, from the words of Moses uttered in all brevity, but destined to serve a host of preachers, there gush clear streams of truth from which each of us, though in more prolix and roundabout phrases, may derive a true explanation of the creation as best he is able, some choosing one and some another interpretation. Some people, when they read or hear what Moses wrote, imagine God as a kind of man or as a vast bodily substance endowed with power, who by some new and sudden decision created heaven and earth. They were two great bodies, an upper and a lower, apart from God as though they were in some separate place, and in them everything was to be contained. When these people hear that God said, let such and such be made, and accordingly it was made, they think of speech with a beginning and an end, heard for a while and then done with. They think that once the words had been pronounced, whatever was ordered to come into existence immediately did so. Any other thoughts which occur to them are limited in the same way by their attachment to the familiar material world around them. These people are still like children, but the very simplicity of the language of scripture sustains them in their weakness as a mother cradles an infant in her lap. On it is built the faith that is their salvation, the faith by which they believe, surely and certainly, that God made all the natures which they can see and hear and touch in the world about them in all their wonderful variety.
But if any man despises the words of scripture as language fit for simpletons, and in the stupidity of pride climbs out of the nest where he was reared, woe betide him, for he shall meet his fall. Have pity on such callow fledglings, O Lord, for those who pass by on the road may tread them underfoot. Send your angel to put them back in the nest, so that they may live and learn to fly. Confessions 28 But there are others for whom the words of Scripture are no longer a nest, but a leafy orchard, where they see the hidden fruit. They fly about it in joy, breaking into song as they gaze at the fruit and feed upon it. For when they read or hear these words, they see that you endure, constant and unchanging, supreme, above all past or future time, and yet there is no temporal creature that was not of your making. They see that because your will is identical with your being, it underwent no change when by it you created all things, nor was it a newly emerged will which had not existed before. They see that you made the world not by creating it from your own substance in your own likeness, which is the form of all things, but by creating from nothing formless matter utterly unlike yourself. By resort to your unity, this matter was to receive form in your likeness, each created thing in its allotted degree. All things were thus to be good, whether they remain close to you or at different degrees of distance from you in time and place, undergo or themselves cause all the wonderful variations which take place in the world. All this they see. And as far as the meagre powers they have in this life enable them to do so, they rejoice in the light of your truth. Some of them, reading the words, In the beginning God made heaven and earth, understand beginning to mean wisdom, who also speaks to us. Others, reading the same words, take beginning to mean the commencement of creation, and therefore they understand the sentence as, In the first place God made heaven and earth. Of those who understand beginning to mean wisdom, something that heaven and earth is another name for matter, which could be used for the creation of heaven and earth. Others think that the words refer to two natures, already distinct and endowed with form. Others, again, think that heaven means a spiritual nature, endowed with form, whereas earth means the formless nature of corporeal matter. There are differences of opinion, too, among those who take heaven and earth to mean that as yet formless matter from which heaven and earth were to be formed. Some think that it means matter from which both creations, that which we can only reach through the mind, and that which we can perceive through the senses, were to be perfected. Others think that it means matter from which only this corporeal world of which we are aware through our senses was to be produced, containing in its vast folds all such natures as are readily perceptible to us. There is also disagreement among those who think that heaven and earth in this context means heaven and earth already formed and disposed in due order. Something that the words refer to the invisible and the visible creation, others that they refer to the visible creation alone, in which we see both the heaven above our earth resplendent with light, 
and the earth shrouded in darkness, together with all that they contain. Confessions 29 Anyone who takes the words in the beginning to be another way of saying in the first place can only understand heaven and earth in this context as the matter of heaven and earth that is the matter of the whole of creation, both spiritual and corporeal. For if he maintains that at this stage the universe already had form, we might well ask him what God made afterwards, if this was what he made first. He will not find anything still remaining to be created once the creation of the universe was complete. And he lays himself open to the awkward question, how can the universe be said to have been made first if nothing was made after it? If, on the other hand, he says that God first created matter without form and then gave it form, this is not an unreasonable theory, provided that he is able to see the distinction between priority in eternity, in time, in choice, and in origin. By priority in eternity, we mean that which is God's, because he pre-exists all things. In time, the priority of the blossom, for instance, in relation to the fruit. In choice, the priority of the fruit, which we should choose before the blossom. And in origin, the priority of sound, for example, before song. Though the second and third of these examples are easy enough to understand, the first and last are extremely difficult. For it is only rarely and with great difficulty that a man can discern your eternity, O Lord, creating things that are subject to change, yet never suffering change itself, and thereby being prior to them all. It also requires acute mental perception to see, without great effort, how sound precedes song. For song is ordered sound, and although a thing may very well exist without order, order cannot be given to a thing which does not exist. In the same way, matter precedes what is made from it, though neither in the sense that it makes anything, because its role is passive rather than active, nor in the sense that it precedes it in time. We do not first emit formless sounds, which do not constitute song and then adapt them and fashion them in the form of song as we do with wood when we make a box, or with silver when we make a bowl. Materials such as wood or metal do of course precede in time the forms of the things which are made from them. But this is not the case with song. For when a song is sung, the sound that is heard is the song itself. It is not first heard as a formless noise, which is afterwards formed into a song. For a sound is no sooner uttered than it dies away, and nothing remains of it for a singer to take up and compose into a song. Therefore the song is inseparable from the sound, which is its material. In order to become a song, the sound receives form. This is what I meant when I said that the material, which is sound, precedes the form, which is song. It does not precede it in the sense that it has power to make it, because it is not the sound, but the singer who makes the song. The sound is simply the material which the singer's voice makes available to his mind in order that he may make a song from it. 
nor is it earlier in time, for the sound is emitted at the same time as the song. It does not take precedence in the sense that we should choose it before song, because song, being not merely sound but sound with beauty added, is preferable to sound. But it does have priority in origin, because it is not the song that receives form in order to be a sound, but vice versa. I hope that those who are able to follow my argument will see from this example that the matter of things was made first and was called heaven and earth because heaven and earth were made from it. But this does not mean that it was made first in terms of time because there is time only where there is form whereas this matter was formless and we are only aware of it in time together with its form. However, we can only speak of it as if it were first in order of time although it is last in order of value, since that which has form is obviously better than that which has none. And it must also be preceded by the eternity of the Creator. Otherwise, how could he create it from nothing in order that something might be made from it? Confessions 30 for all the differences between them, there is truth in each of these opinions. May this truth give birth to harmony, and may the Lord our God have pity on us, so that we may apply the law legitimately, that is, to the end prescribed in the commandment, which is charity undefiled. The same precept of charity obliges me, if I am asked which of these opinions was held by Moses your servant, to admit that I do not know. If I did not confess this to you, O Lord, these words that I write would not be my confessions. But I do know that all these opinions are consistent with the truth, except those childlike beliefs of which I have already said as much as I thought fit to say. Nevertheless, those who hold such beliefs are children of good promise. They are not deterred from accepting the message of your book, which reveals its mysteries in language simple enough for them to grasp and tell so much in so few words. As for the rest of us who all, as I admit, see true meanings in those words and explain them accordingly, let us love one another. And if our thirst is not for vanity but for the truth, let us likewise love you, our God, who are the source from which it flows. Let us also honour Moses your servant who delivered your scriptures to us and was filled with your spirit by believing that when he wrote those words, by your inspiration his thoughts were directed to whichever meaning sheds the fullest light of truth and enables us to reap the greatest profit. Confessions 31 for this reason, although I hear people say Moses meant this or Moses meant that, I think it more truly religious to say why should he not have had both meanings in mind if both are true? And if others see in the same words a third or a fourth or any number of true meanings, why should we not believe that Moses saw them all? 
There is only one God who caused Moses to write the Holy Scriptures in the way best suited to the minds of great numbers of men who would all see truths in them, though not the same truths in each case. For my part, I declare resolutely and with all my heart that if I were called upon to write a book which was to be vested with the highest authority, I should prefer to write it in such a way that a reader could find re-echoed in my words whatever truths he was able to apprehend. I would rather write in this way than impose a single true meaning so explicitly that it would exclude all others, even though they contained no falsehood that could give me offence. And if this is what I would choose for myself, I will not be so rash, my God, as to suppose that so great a man as Moses deserved a lesser gift from you. As he wrote those words, he was aware of all that they implied. He was conscious of every truth that we can deduce from them and of others besides that we cannot or cannot yet find in them, but are nevertheless there to be found. Confessions 32 Finally, O Lord, since you are God and not flesh and blood, even if men have seen less in those words than there is to be seen, is it possible that anything should be concealed from your gracious Spirit, who shall lead me on till I find sure ground under my feet? Could anything that you were to reveal by those words to readers in later times have been hidden from your Holy Spirit, even though the man through whom they were spoken may have had in mind only one of many true meanings? And if he had only one meaning in mind, let us admit that it must transcend all others. O Lord, make clear to us this meaning or any other true meaning that it may please you to reveal, so that whether you disclose to us the one which your servant Moses had in mind or any other which can be extracted from the same words, we shall feed from your hand and not be deluded by error. O Lord my God, how much I have written on so few words. What endurance I should need and how much time if I were to comment upon the whole of your scriptures at such length. Let me then continue to lay before you my thoughts upon the scriptures, but more briefly. And in so doing, let me be content to give one explanation only, the one which I see by your inspiration to be true and certain and good, even though many may occur to me in places where more than one is possible. Let me lay this confession before you in the firm belief that if the explanation I give accords with the meaning which Moses had in mind, I shall have done what is right and best. This is what I must try my utmost to do. But if I fail, let me at least say what your truth wills to reveal to me by the words of Scripture just as he revealed what he willed to Moses.